Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 31, Leviticus chapter 21. We got a little way into Leviticus 21 last week, and the thrust of those first few verses dealt with death and the uncleanness of death. And let's be clear... <clears throat> that these passages speak to the Levites and priests of Israel, not necessarily to the population at large. So as you think about how these verses apply to you, keep that in mind. Yes, I know that in the New Testament, believers in Yeshua are called a priesthood. But that is speaking to us in a more spiritual level because we don't become physical Levites when we're saved any more than we become physical Jews when we're saved. Now, death and the ritual uncleanness of it are an issue in the Bible because God hates it. Okay? it it's an abomination to him because death is abnormal. While we refer in our time to an average lifespan of 80 or 90 years as normal, at least in our society, and the Bible says that the ideal lifespan for a human is 120 years. A person who dies at an advanced age is generally spoken of today as having died a natural death. Age has just caused his or her body to wear out. But, but for the Lord, the two terms natural and death don't belong together in a sentence. Death and the resultant decay of the human body happened due to sin entering the lives of Adam and Eve. Sin results in uncleanness, so just as sin is abnormal for mankind, so is death. And God treats it just that way. Therefore, we have those who are the nearest to God, his priests, being given severe restrictions when it comes to their being in proximity to death. And this is not an act of unkindness. It's not a lack of sympathy on the part of the Lord. It's a demonstration or an illustration of just how seriously he views death as something that never belonged in his universe to start with. The good news for his redeemed is that we only have to face a physical death. Our spirits will live on with the Lord and we'll never miss these frail tents of flesh that serve us for the moment. Okay, Let's reread some of this uh, wonderful chapter, uh, Leviticus 21. We're going to start at 1 and just read the first six verses. Leviticus 21. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to the Kohanim, the priests, the sons of Aaron, and tell them, no Cohen is to make himself unclean for any of his people who dies, except for his close relatives, his mother, father, son, daughter, brother. He may also make himself unclean for his virgin sister, who was never married, and is therefore dependent on him. He may not make himself unclean because he is a leader among his people. Doing so would profane him. Kohanim are not to make bald spots on their heads, mar the edges of their beard, or cut gashes in their flesh. Rather, they are to be holy for their God, not profane the name of their God, for they are the ones who present Adonai with offerings made by fire, the bread of their God. 
Therefore, they must be holy. Verse 4 has always presented a problem for the Hebrews. And the plain sense of it says, quite bluntly, that a priest cannot attend to his own wife should she die. In a physical, biological sense, those half dozen relatives that a priest is allowed to attend to in their death, mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, are his flesh and blood relatives. A wife, though, a Levite woman in this case, was not considered his flesh and blood. Now, let me say that in another way. The relatives that a priest was permitted to attend were closely genetically tied to that priest. But a wife is not genetically tied to that priest. In fact, the Torah is very specific about just how close of a blood relative any Israelite could marry, and a wife had to be outside that boundary to qualify, otherwise it was considered incest. Now, I'm sure that many of you are already thinking, well, what about that principle stated early in the Torah, in Genesis 2.24, that when a man and a woman are joined together in marriage, they become as one flesh? Well, here is another instance of our having to mature in our faith so that we can distinguish between the spiritual and the physical sense of things in the scriptures. Common sense and mere observation tells us that literally and physically, a man and his wife do not magically fuse together upon the last words of their wedding, uh, wedding ritual and from that point forward share one set of legs, arms, noses, ears, or any other body parts. Rather, this one flesh is meant in a spiritual sense. It refers to a mental attitude that a married couple should adopt. And to a degree, it's a metaphor for the perfect unity of the Godhead. The Hebrew sages acknowledge that from a spiritual standpoint, a man and his wife are as one. Echad. But they separate that from the physical and biological sense of it. Therefore, the law was applied such that since in all cases of legal regulations, a man's wife could not be his close genetic relative, she was excluded from the group of family members that a priest could attend to upon her death. That was their rationale. Later on in Hebrew history, this prohibition was actually amended by some scribes who determined on the reasoning that since Abraham and Jacob personally attended to their wives' funerals, then it ought to be permitted for a Levite priest. And the rationale behind their ruling is interesting. They determined that even though a priest would be infected with a very high and serious degree of impurity by attending to his wife's death, that it was his reasonable duty to do so, notwithstanding. However, this was only to occur when the priest and his wife had no other close family to bury her. Now, I find that reasoning quite interesting because that more or less embodies the idea 
that as believers we are made clean and we're to remain separate from anything that is unclean. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.17 because this is not just an Old Testament admonition. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and then I will welcome you. In Scripture, there is nothing more unclean than death. Yet we're commanded for the sake of mercy and love, are we not, to go to the unclean people of this world and take to them the word of God that brings salvation. The gospel message. In other words, it's not that by doing the loving and merciful thing, now follow me here, please. It's not by doing the merciful and loving thing of presenting the gospel that we're somehow exempted from the rules of clean and unclean. Rather, it is that we are to personally risk coming into contact with the unclean for the sake of the gospel. The Hebrew urged the priest that if necessary, he could make the choice to risk personal defilement if it was necessary, if it was the loving and merciful thing to do to care for his dead wife. I'll tell you, I wish that in some ways this principle about ritual purity weren't so, but it is. I I wish that by our doing what what is right, what is merciful, what is compassionate, that all the consequences would be nothing but good for us. Doing the right thing, unfortunately, can often be harmful to our health, to our relationships, to our jobs, to our ministries and more. But what kind of trust in Yehovah or what type of love are we displaying if we only do good if it brings good consequences? The good news for believers is that Yeshua's living water rushes over us at all times. We may well become defiled at times, in a sense at least for going to the unclean and unsaved people of this world and coming into contact with them. We may well be violating God's ritual purity instructions by our laying a hand on a prostitute who's in spiritual ruin or lovingly caring for the deceased or comforting the homosexual who's so confused and miserable. But I'm convinced that Yeshua's living water washes us clean practically before it happens. I've said on a number of occasions that the only reason for God's rules about sin and about ritual impurity to exist in the first place is because of our fallen state. As the centuries have passed and as the, the fabric of the world has become more and more saturated with sin and and deprivation, it's now virtually impossible for a man, including believers, not to commit sin at some point in our lives. Even if the intention is always to be obedient to God's commands and to do good. I often give the illustration of Corey Ten Boom hiding Jews and lying to her government authorities about it because it's one that most people can identify with. But you know, the Torah never makes an exception for lying. A lie is always a sin. Yet in order for Corey to have done a greater good, 
saving the lives of those innocent Jews, she took that sin and its eternal consequences upon herself. If she had not been redeemed by Messiah, that that sin of lying would still be on her head throughout eternity, though she was doing a good thing. But she, because she trusted Yeshua, she was forgiven for it. Point being that a lie was still a lie even though it was meant for good. The Lord still saw it as trespassing against him. And his justice demands that a penalty was due for it. Our attempt at kindness and compassion does not negate the requirement to be obedient to God's commands. The priest who attended to his deceased wife did not avoid becoming defiled simply because he did a loving and compassionate act. Rather, he willingly accepted the spiritual and physical consequences of becoming ritually unclean as a greater good. And this is a principle that we need to bear upon ourselves as we go through our lives. And by the way, understanding, or rather understand that there is a very big difference between ministering to the unclean of this world and uniting with them. We are never to compromise God's principles nor water down the truth, nor are we to become one of the unclean in our behavior in order to minister to them. We are not to come into union with the unclean. Paul specifically gives the example of avoiding illicit sexual relations with the unclean because sex is of itself a sacred union. To create this kind of union between the clean and unclean is called table, confusion. It is improper mixing, or as the phrase the modern church prefers, unequal yoking, that a believer must always avoid. There is a rather interesting instruction in verse 5. And it says that the priest's head should not be shaved smooth, nor should the side growth of his beard be removed, nor is he to make gashes in his skin. Now, every one of these acts were pagan Canaanite funeral rituals, which, of course, God prohibited. Now, in fact, these prohibitions have been instructed before as a general rule for priests to observe at all times, not just for a funeral. But but this is actually just adding a little bit of detail by explaining that even during a formal time of mourning, of grief, priests are not to do these things. As a quick reminder, what is being explained here is that the priest's head, meaning the crown of his head, is not to be shaved nor is any hair to be pulled out. The mention of the side growth of the beard is what today we might call sideburns. The Hebrew priests were to have full heads of hair and full beards joined together with those sideburns. Now, one of the reasons for this prohibition is that since these same rules also apply to the general Hebrew population, how much more strenuously they must be followed by those who, it says in verse 6, offer the Lord's offerings by fire, the food of their God. If one's going to be a priest of God, one who approaches God with sacrificial offerings, 
then his rules must be followed even more scrupulously, not less. I mean, think about your standing as a believer in Yeshua and let what I just told you sink in for a minute. Our redemption bought it such a great price is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not a permanent mulligan for you golfers out there. Okay. Far from it. Our redemption is a commitment to our Lord to obey Him. Okay. As we studied the Torah, it has become crystal clear that the Lord didn't expect that the unredeemed abide by His laws and commands. The Torah wasn't for them. Rather, it was those who He set apart and He saved for Himself that he demanded adherence to his rules and regulations. And those who were blessed with an even greater nearness to him, his priests, were thus expected to be even more perfect. By the way, notice the reference that in that same verse, it calls the burnt offerings the food of their God. Food? For God? Does God eat food? Well, the thing is that as inspired as the Holy Scripture is, it was men who were writing this down. It was men who needed it and men who were being communicated to. So the Scriptures were written and spoken in terms normal for their society and culture. For all practical purposes, every known culture in the Bible era practiced giving burnt offerings to their gods. They employed altars and they brought sacrificial offerings to a god. Um, And all this was completely known by Israel long before Moses in Mount Sinai. And they would have expected nothing less as Jehovah gave them the Torah. The, the, The word used for food in this passage is lechem. And lechem is a very general and common Hebrew word that actually means food, but it also doubles as the word for bread. And and this, since bread was a staple food. Now, in Hebrew thinking, when we use the phrase that we gentle Christians have so readily adopted, the bread of life, the sense of it was the food of life, the sustenance of life. We simply have a common way of Hebrew speaking being laid out here in these verses. And you can bet that in some way or another the Israelites did envision God eating those sacrifices as food, much in the same way they envisioned God as smelling the aroma of that smoke that is the burnt offerings wafted up towards the heavens. Now the pagan cultures they were so familiar with taught that these burnt offerings were the food of the gods, and that if they didn't get those sacrifices of foods, that the gods would literally grow hungry. And in some time, they would even grow weak from the lack of food. That God declared Israel not to be pagan anymore didn't mean they stopped thinking like pagans, or behaving like pagans. Certainly after several hundred years of living away from Egypt and under the law, the concept of there being only one God and of his purely spiritual attributes needing no physical sustenance took much stronger stronger root among the Hebrews. But if we read the Bible honestly, there is no way that we can miss this constant reference 
to this multiple God, pagan style of thinking that remained embedded within the Hebrew people. Let's read a little bit more of chapter uh, 21. Let's start at verse 7. A Kohen is not to marry a woman who is a prostitute, who has been profaned or has been divorced because he is holy for his God. Rather, you are to set him apart as holy because he offers the bread of your God. He is to be holy for you because I add and I make you holy. At the daughter of a Kohen who profanes herself by prostitution profanes her father. She is to be put to death by fire. The Kohen who is ranked highest among his brothers, the one whose head the anointing oil is poured and who is consecrated to put on the garments, is not to stop grooming his hair and tear his clothes, going to where any dead body is, or make himself unclean, even when his father and mother dies. He may not leave the sanctuary then, or profane the sanctuary of his God, because the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am at an eye. He is to marry a virgin. He's not to marry a widow, a divorcee, profaned woman or a prostitute, but he must marry a virgin from among his own people and not disqualify his descendants among his people because I'm Adonai who makes him holy. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron, none of your descendants who has a defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one with a defect may approach. No one blind, lame, with a mutilated face or a limb too long, a broken foot or a broken arm, a hunched back, stunted growth, a cataract in his eye festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No one descended from Aaron the Cohen who has such a defect may approach to present the offerings for Adonai made by fire. He has a defect and he's not to approach to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the especially holy and the holy, only he is not to go in to the curtain or approach the altar because he has a defect so that he will not profane my holy places because I am Adonai who makes them holy. Moses said these things to Aaron, his sons, and to all the people of Israel. <clears throat> Next is this prohibition of a priest marrying a woman who, according to most translations, is a harlot or a divorcee. And the actual Hebrew words that are usually translated harlot uh, is zona, and then the phrase is added va halala, right? And most literally, it means degraded by harlotry. So it's not saying don't marry a harlot. It's saying don't marry a woman who's been defiled by any act of harlotry. Now, there is a big difference in status of these two conditions, and the rabbis wrote about it. In a nutshell. A woman was not considered to be a harlot unless she regularly practiced prostitution or sexual immorality of some sort. A woman who had, let's say once or twice in her life, fallen into sin by committing fornication was not considered to be a harlot, even though she behaved like one. Rather, she was... Of course, not of exemplary and pure enough character, though, to be eligible to marry a priest. And that, so there's a difference here. Now, God lays down the principle that to commit a certain type of evil act, an act that's not typical of your character or of your regular lifestyle, does not necessarily identify you as being in union with that particular kind of evil. But it's a real slippery slope. It's not 
a long way from occasionally participating in a certain sin for it to become your lifestyle. Yet, if that evil behavior is indeed indicative of your typical character and desires and regular behavior, then you've already come into union with that evil. And you are to be identified with that sin. Now, that may sound like double talk, but Paul gives us further food for thought about this subject. Paul tells us in um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. By applying the principles from Leviticus to this quote from Paul, we see that it is not that if you commit an isolated act of idolatry that you're now labeled an idolater by the Lord and thus disqualified from redemption. Nor does one who's gotten drunk some small number of times necessarily become labeled as a drunkard by biblical standards. Rather, it's when you have thoroughly given yourself over to these things that you gain a label. It happens when idolatry becomes a way of life. When getting drunk and behaving irresponsibly becomes the norm. When sexual immorality becomes your lifestyle. And and the same standard applies to all these other offenses that Paul talked about. It's when you have come into such a comfort level with an evil behavior that God judges that you have come into union with it such that he sees you and that sin joined together as one. Your name, your reputation, has become one with the name of that sin. As I said, this is God's call. This isn't our call. It is he who judges when a spiritual line has been crossed. But it's often pretty evident who is in great danger of crossing or may have already crossed that line. And and it's also fairly evident, I think, to ourselves if we qualify to be lumped in with that group and gain a label. Now, I'm spending a little time with this issue because I want you all to be able to look into the mirror and ask yourself, is it possible that you and some sin have become one. Or if you're liable to lapse into that sin from time to time and are honestly repentant of it or not. I'm also telling you this because if at one time you indeed had given yourself over to one of those lifestyles of sin but have repented from it in Yeshua's name, you can rest assured that you're no longer labeled by that sin, at least by anybody who counts, namely the Lord. But if you continue to revel in that sin, or make excuses for it, perhaps even refusing to acknowledge it as sin, or you have no interest in giving it up, if you refuse to even recognize that you've come into union with that sin, well, that's another matter for another discussion, but it is serious and dangerous to say the least. What I'm hoping is that those of us who may live 
perhaps with a terrible guilt of the past, and have truly repented of those ways, will be released to God's shalom. Because just as Yeshua has liberated us from sin, he's liberated us from the label. Okay, we should accept that. Be grateful and move on. Okay, now, the same law prohibited a priest from marrying a divorced woman. Now, notice that the two things being degraded by an act of harlotry and, uh, and being divorced are kind of lumped together. And there was a reason for this. In Deuteronomy 24.1 it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. See, the Torah specifies one cause and one alone for a man to divorce his wife. That she committed an act of sexual immorality. That is, this is what's meant by the statement here, he has found some indecency in her, which really isn't as pointed a remark as it should be. The word translated in English as indecency, which is in most of our Bibles, is in Hebrew, erva. And erva most literally means nakedness. Erva is a sexual term. By our modern language, it would be better rendered he found out she committed a sexually immoral act. It was not until a little before the time of Jesus that the disciples of Hillel attempted to make divorce less restrictive by saying that this verse applied to many more kinds of unfaithfulness than sexual. Up to that time, it was only some form of sexual infidelity that had legal grounds for divorce. So the idea here is that a man, a priest, should not marry a woman who had shown herself to be capable of immoral sexual activity through either selling her body or by means of marital infidelity. Now, ladies, here's a little insight to keep an eye on in biblical stories. Men weren't much different yesterday than today. Okay. If a man decided he was tired of his wife and wanted to divorce her, he simply accused her of infidelity. He didn't have to prove it. He simply accused her and that was that. In fact, due to the law, if he was able to prove this infidelity, the consequence was death for her. And you'll find many cases of divorce in the Bible, but precious few executions. Now last week we talked about a child's duty to his or her parents. And that to not properly honor your parents merited the death penalty. And here in verse 9, we get a good example of what not honoring could amount to. A daughter of a priest who commits an act, act of sexual immorality must be burned to death because she defiles more than herself. She's defiled her father. And in our society, sexual immorality used to be well, winked at. Now it's practically celebrated. For God, there's almost nothing more serious than for one of his people to be sexually immoral. Okay. The death by fire method of execution, see, indicates the worst of the worst forms of punishment set aside for the worst of the worst sins. Now let me take a few minutes to put some things in perspective. 
and to make some connections. The last several weeks in particular have, I hope, given us a better understanding of just how holy Jehovah is. I love it that, that Bob talked today about how he spent all night just thinking about how holy God is. How awesome he is. It just brought him to a point he had to write the words down about it. He is so holy. Right? And how he will take whatever means are necessary to protect his holiness. And that is not just his expectation, but his demand upon those of us who claim allegiance to him. That's why we're to be holy. We've seen this long series of ordinances and rules, typically called laws, that carefully spell out the human behaviors that express holiness and conversely those that are against holiness. Of course, what usually impacts the average Bible student more than the listing of laws is the severe nature of the consequences, the punishments for what happens if somebody breaks one of those laws. These consequences and punishments are often referred to as curses and taken together sometimes as the curse of the law. And in chapter 20, and here again in 21, we've seen this ranking of sins and a kind of hierarchy of bad and worse and then the prescribed punishments. And remember, all sin is is a violation against God's holiness, will, and laws. Earlier in Leviticus, by means of the various kinds of sacrifices we, we learned about, what each sacrifice was meant to accomplish, the required animal for each kind, and a few other rules of the sacrificial protocol, we were shown conclusively that the rather typical church doctrine that says all sins are the same, a sin is a sin is a sin, that stealing candy bars no different in God's eyes than murder, okay? this is just not scripturally sound. Okay? That in fact some sins are far worse, far more dangerous than other sins. And this is expressed by means of the level of punishment prescribed to each one, to each level. And it startles us after years of being taught about a grandfatherly, all-merciful, all-forgiving, peaceful God that this very same God would demand people to be burned to death for some of the most serious trespasses committed against him. That he will quickly snuff out life, permanently banish people from his presence to protect and defend his holiness. And that when he says someone must be perfect to be in his presence, he means perfect. Perfect. Here's the thing. Those who have not turned the lordship of their lives over to Jesus still face these same consequences that we read about in the law. They still face them. Certainly in this world, they may not receive these particular punishments for the crimes that they commit because God has turned the matter of justice over to human governments, almost all of which have decided to go against God's system of law and order, crime and punishment, and we've established our own, and we live with the results of that every day. However, the consequences, the curses of the law will be faced 
by everyone who doesn't know Yeshua. Either at the direct hand of God in this life, or in the hereafter, or maybe both. Remember that here in Leviticus, God told Israel, if you won't do as I instruct and prosecute those who do violate my laws, I will. I'll do it. I will cut off by my own hand those who trespass against me. The thing that I'm telling you is this. Christ, the author of the Torah, the author of the law, could not order that such consequences be required for breaking his laws and then not carry it out. How much respect would we have, or frankly should we have, for a God that runs around ordering these things done, says that, by the way, these things are everlasting, then says, ah, forget it, I changed my mind. Please hear what I'm about to tell you. Those punishments prescribed for most serious or, frankly, for the most minute violations of the law will be accounted for. They will be paid for. Every last one of them. I don't care whether that violation occurred in Old Testament times, New Testament times, five minutes ago or five minutes from now. And it doesn't matter whether a pagan or a lifelong believer committed those violations. Every sin that I committed, every one of those laws I have violated must be paid for, no exceptions. Otherwise, God's holiness is a hoax. And when he gives a command, it's hollow and meaningless. If I don't pay for my sins, somebody's got to pay for them. That's the justice system that God has established. Someone is going to burn in a fire for you or me having committed sexual immorality. Someone's going to be stoned to death for you or me committing blasphemy. But in the most amazing act of mercy the world has ever known, the law giver the Torah giver, the one who made the laws and decided the consequences, volunteered to be that somebody who takes the countless punishments you and I are required without exception to pay. When Jesus was hanging from that cross, he was burned to death by his father a million times over. Yeshua was stoned to death by a landslide of rocks coming from his father's wrath. He was cut off, separated away from his people and from his father by his father. Banished for the countless number of trespasses committed by us, each requiring those punishments. Remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He yelled out when that exact banishment occurred. He bore all those horrible consequences, one by agonizing, one that we've all spent a lifetime accumulating. Those consequences which come from violating the very laws he ordained, 
And when he was creating those laws, he knew in advance it was going to be himself. He was going to pay the price for them in place of those who loved him. See, the good news is, is that as we begin to see ourselves for who we really are through the eyes of the laws of Leviticus, as we see the seriousness of the terrible things we've done against Jehovah, some before we knew him, some after, recognize that somebody has to pay for them all. And somebody has, and he continues to. My brothers and sisters in Yeshua, we escape the fire for what we've done and for what we do. But Yeshua didn't. And now, redeemed and never having to face God's just and terrible judgments against us, how dare we as God's people trivialize what Jesus did by declaring that all those sins that arise from violating those laws of Torah can't even be committed. Say what? That those principles and commands he made from heaven and came to earth to pay the price for their violation, oh, those are obsolete and gone now. Perhaps it makes us feel better about ourselves, I guess, to think that God solved the problem of sin Sin simply by getting rid of the laws. But that's not so. The law remains, as do their consequences. It's just that Yeshua is our substitute. He's the bearer of all those horrific punishments, of all those horrific curses required of those laws. And we should walk out of here today free, grateful, sober, and determined to obey him. Not because it gains us anything extra, but because we owe it. We owe it to him. We should leave here with our eyes opened that unfortunately many deceived church institutions now think that obedience doesn't even matter anymore. Yet Christ died a death for every one of our disobediences. See, the Torah is alive and well. The curses of the Torah, unfortunately, are alive and well. The question is only, who bears the curse? If you have given yourself over to Yeshua, then he's agreed to bear it for you. And to set you free from the consequences. But not, not from the commands. You're not free from the commands. If you've not turned to Yeshua, then as it says in Leviticus, your blood is on you you'll pay that price with your eternal life and you'll bear all of those punishments with utterly no hope of escape. I'm certainly not saying that the cultural way in which the principles behind each of these laws and commands were maybe at one time practiced must be practiced in an identical way in our day. But some things, like the definitions of prohibitions against Things like sexual immorality, fair play, injustice with our fellow man, staying away from that which is unclean for us, observing the Sabbath. So many more of those ancient laws are rather straightforward. They're not bound up in culture. Other things like how we observe the Sabbath, how we celebrate biblical feasts, the roles of males and females in society, 
we're going to have to wrestle with some of those things. We're going to have to learn how to reapply those principles to our own lives. They're not all that straightforward. Now, I believe that it's my assignment to teach you the Torah, the place where all of these principles are taught and demonstrated. Just remember that the Torah is every bit as much Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, speaking to you as any sentence in the New Testament. So let's return now to our study of chapter 21. With verse 10, we move from dealing with the ordinary priest to the high priest. The verse partially defines the high priest by speaking of him as the one who receives the anointing oil. In fact, in priestly consecrations, as we saw in chapter 8, he's the only one who was anointed in oil. Regular priests are not. And the first thing that is discussed is death in the high priest family just as with ordinary priests. And immediately we see though that there's a difference. The high priest cannot touch the dead body. He can't participate in the funeral even of his parents. Remember there was a list of six people that regular priests could. The high priest can't even do that. And one of the major reasons for this is because the high priest is the only one ever allowed to venture into where? The Holy of Holies. Therefore, it's nigh unto impossible for the high priest to ever become sufficiently clean from having contacted death that he wouldn't in some way defile God's dwelling place on earth. Further, the high priest could only marry a virgin of the priestly family. Now, no priest would ever marry any but a virgin girl, and, and neither, frankly, would most regular Israelite men. But regular priests could marry a girl from any Levite family. The high priest was restricted to only certain family lines within the Levites to find a wife. She must have come from the higher classes of the ordinary priests. And as tough as some of this has been, for us to hear. Verse 16 adds other stringent requirements for service in the priesthood. Namely, no priest with a defect can officiate at a sacrificial offering. The Hebrew word used here is mum. M-U-M. Mum. And it means blemish or defect. So, priests who have any of this list of things wrong with their bodies can't present offerings to God. Now, they remain part of the priesthood and they're given whatever is their normal portion of food and money taken from the sacrifices. So it's not like they were expelled or they were made hungry or poverty stricken. The list that I read to you earlier is rather long and mostly self-explanatory, so I'll just limit my comments about it. Okay. It says blind and lame, and it does not mean totally blind and completely unable to walk. Blind can mean one eye has been damaged and the other is intact. It could mean that the priest has cataracts. Okay. The idea is that his vision is severely impaired. Lame can even mean a bad limp. It could mean a foot was missing. Any number of impediments to normal walking. But it by no means meant that the person had to be severely crippled. Now, 
It mentions a broken leg in here. Or a broken arm. But that's because, you see, they didn't do a very good job of setting bones in those days. And having a difficult break usually wound up in some kind of deformity. Interestingly, it says no one with a hunched back or suffered from who suffered from dwarfism could perform sacrifices either. Now this whole set of rules about blemishes and deformities are there because it continues to develop this concept of holiness as being about wholeness and normality. Here it's being demonstrated by physical attributes such that the person who is going to serve the Lord must not be blemished or abnormal in any way. Merely a blemish disqualifies one from approaching God. Why? Because perfection is required. Now, what we're going to find is that because certain animals were set aside for holiness in the form of being the acceptable sacrificial offerings for God, we get a very similar list of requirements for the physical perfection for the priest. In fact, the list is almost a precise parallel. Animals couldn't have these defects. The priest couldn't have those same defects. God's holiness is so transcendent that even the hint of imperfection is defiling to his immutable holiness. And he'll protect that holiness at any cost. Thus, there is the reason for Jesus the Christ. Yeshua HaMashiach. The principles and demands behind these strict laws of Leviticus have never been countermanded. If we hope to approach God, if we hope to find favor with him, somehow we have to be perfect without the tiniest blemish. Thank God the sacrifice of Yeshua has atoned for our sins so completely that the tiniest blemish is gone. His living water has washed us so clean that to God we are spotless. Not because we are perfect. Not because we have merited perfection nor attained perfection, but because we've been declared perfect. So as the priests of Israel learned that a proper response to the unfathomable honor of serving God Almighty was to love Him with their entire mind, soul, and strength, so should we. And the way we do that is just as they strove to do it, to be obedient to His will as guided by the Holy Spirit, joyfully done, out of gratitude for what He's already done for us. We'll start chapter 22 next week.